This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmertown. My guest today, Avicio Garg. Welcome, sir, to our program. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. You know my co-anchor, right, Dana Perino? Yeah, I do. She's fantastic. So she meets you at a conference in the American West about a month or two ago, and she comes back and she says, Bill, I know you're into this crypto stuff. You must speak to Avicio about it. So that, that's what brought us together today. So your job is to make sense of this. Are you ready for that? <laughs> Happy to try. All right, here we go. You're the co-founder and partner at Electric Capital. You live in the Bay Area in California, and I really appreciate your time. Why did you believe in this? Ah, what a good question. Um, that is not where I thought you'd start off. So uh, I'll give you the backstory. So uh, you know, my co-founder and I, uh, our, our backgrounds are mostly as entrepreneurs. We've started and sold two companies um, and, um, and, you know, been active, uh, early stage investors in technology. And so we've invested in everything from, um, you know, SaaS software as a service companies and FinTech companies, and, and many of those have done well and, um, will IPO in the coming years. Uh, and we've done a lot of frontier tech. So things like self-driving cars, uh, supersonic airplanes, uh, genomics. And so we were dabbling in, um, in crypto, uh, several years ago. And, and mostly from Sorry, the lens of... How many years ago? Well, we, we started first playing with this stuff back in 2010. Okay. Um, and mostly out of interest, my, my co-founder, Curtis, um, he's, a, he's a buddy of mine from uh, undergrad. Um, you know, we, he comes from a distributed systems background. He has a computer science background, as, as do I. Um, and he has, a, he has a, a background specifically in distributed systems, which is how do you get computers to sort of coordinate and talk to each other at, at large scale over long distances, things like that. Um, and, and really have a shared state of understanding of what's happening. And, and that is, you know, that, that field of study is sort of underpins a lot of the internet. Um, it's really important for things like self-driving cars as well. Um, and so that, that's sort of his background. And, and he came across a white paper um, in 2009 um, for Bitcoin and he read it. And, you know, now I think Bitcoin, uh, a lot of people know, and has become sort of this, this monetary and um, you know, this sort of sovereign, you know, non-sovereign money sort of thing. But the way we looked at it back in 2010 was as a new way to write software, because that, that's sort of you know, our perspective on the world as engineers. And so we said, oh, wow, this is really interesting, because what this lets you do is it lets you potentially solve a really hard problem in computer science around how do you get compute, how do you how do you build a distributed system where people give you computational power? Like, what is their incentive to put computation into this network? Um, and one of the realizations that we had with Bitcoin was, well, maybe you could just pay people for it. And now you actually have a way to pay people in a distributed way without everybody having to set up bank accounts and everybody having to, um, you know, sort of move wires around. And all of a sudden, you can just pay people to give you computational power. So that was our that was sort of our lens on it. Is oh, this is just a different way to build software. And that was long before Bitcoin became this sort of, you know, monetary instrument. Um, and and so we were dabbling with it, and and we were just sort of playing with this stuff for years and years, and it, it never, you know, quite hit. Until about 2016, when um, a project named Ethereum came along, and what Ethereum really did was it created a, a much easier way to program 
um, in these systems and created smart contracts um, and made them accessible. And as we were playing with that stuff, and this was, you know, meanwhile, we weren't on the stuff full time, we were just sort of hobbyists. So we were, you know, working, we were starting our companies and scaling them and, um, and, and um, selling them, but we were sort of dabbling. And so in, in 2016, when we started playing with Ethereum, we said, wait a second, this is amazing. This actually is what, what we thought would happen five or six years ago. And now it might actually happen because what you can start to do is write code in this new way. And then our, our gear started turning and we said, well, what does that mean? Like, how, what does that actually mean? What can you do with this? And, and the way we looked at it was we said, well, if you look at these systems, they make a really interesting set of trade-offs, these distributed systems, right? They're, they're slow. They don't have a lot of throughput. They're kind of clunky and hard to use. But what they give you is a really interesting set of things. They let you own all of your own data because you have a, a computer and like it, it you know, has all the data and then it sort of coordinates with a bunch of other computers, but you control that computer. So you control your own data. You have a, a new degree of privacy, like crypto, you know, the root of that word is cryptography. Um, hmm. and, and so you have new, new forms of privacy um, that are enabled here. Um, you have um, sort of sovereignty of, uh, you have, of the data because you own it. So nobody else can control it and change it. Um, it's not sitting in some third-party database inside Facebook or Google, and they can change it however they want. Um, and that's really interesting because actually when you look at that set of trade-offs, it's basically the opposite of the internet, right? The internet is really about speed and scalability and throughput. And what we realize now is that in order to get those properties, what we did was we handed over all of our data to these third parties and we gave them all the control and we gave them sovereignty and ownership. And so, it, you know, as a venture investor, when you look at something and you say, wait a second, this thing that I'm looking at does the opposite of what the previous generation of technologies did, sort of your spidey sense starts tingling a little bit. You say, wait a second, that sniffs like it could be disruptive because what that means is if this thing is doing the opposite of what we used to do, that means all of the big tech companies, all of the incumbents actually are at a structural disadvantage because they built their organizations and their businesses with those strengths and weaknesses in mind. And now come, along comes this different way to do stuff, which actually does the exact opposite. And so they're gonna be at a structural disadvantage in the same way that internet companies we're at a structural advantage relative to the PC companies, right? Or the mobile companies were at an advantage. So this happens with every wave of technology. And so mm -hmm. our spidey sense started tingling. So we started spending more and more time in the space. And, and it kind of blew our minds because it was the first time since the internet that we saw this sort of raw bottoms up energy. And, and what I mean by that is like, we would go into these chat rooms um, in 2016, 2017, and it was like being on the internet frontier again. Like you would be in a room and you didn't know who anybody was. It was just a bunch of usernames. And somebody would say something brilliant and you didn't know if that person was you know a 16 year old kid sitting in iowa or was it a 36 year old sitting in um you know in england or was it a professor in south africa like you just had no idea who these people were but they were all sort of collaborating and communicating and sharing these ideas and these principles which we can talk about um and so we saw this raw energy that felt to us like the internet and and so we said wow here's this extremely disruptive platform here's this raw energy and kind of the same people that made the internet happen. So college kids, you know, college professors, um, you know, uh, there are a lot of government people here, like, you know, NSA, CIA, people who really understand, you know, um, uh, privacy and, and uh, cryptography. Um, and so all the same people that kind of made the internet happen are all here again. Like that's pretty interesting. And so as we spent more and more time in it, we built conviction that this was actually potentially the next big wave of computing. Um, and so we kind of went down the rabbit hole. Um, and, and have been there ever since. And so we spent wow. uh, really the last, last five years full-time in this space. Okay, so you said something in the middle of that. You said that it's a new way of paying people. What's wrong mm -hmm. with Venmo or, or PayPal? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So, you know, the roots of, of um, the whole space come from, from the Bitcoin white paper. I mean, there's actually a long history prior to that. Uh, 
of eCash and DigiCash. And, you know, the NSA was playing with this stuff in the 80s. And so there's a very, very long history actually prior to Bitcoin. But for, for all intents and purposes, sort of the modern wave of this stuff has its roots in Bitcoin. And I would encourage anybody who hasn't read the Bitcoin white paper to go read the Bitcoin white paper. Where, where do you because, find that? Oh, if you just search Google for Bitcoin <laughs> white paper, a, a PDF will come up. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, it's pretty, it's, it's actually pretty short. Um, uh, you know, it's like 10 pages. Um, and, and it's very accessible, actually. I mean, you don't have to have like a, a PhD in math or, or computer science to understand it. You know, the latter parts of the paper get a little bit more technical, but the introduction and the early parts of it are very intuitive. And, and essentially what this person or persons that created Bitcoin, um, Satoshi, Satoshi Nakamoto, Nakamoto, sorry, um, what Satoshi said, you know, in the, in the sort of the preamble, and if you look at a lot of the messages in the forums, and by the way, I think you know this, but um, you know, listeners may not, this is an anonymous person. Nobody knows who Satoshi is. This, this is somebody who's brilliant, who wrote a, a white paper and turned it into a PDF and put it online and said, here's essentially a manifesto of, of something. And here I've solved some really hard computer science problems, which we can talk about. And I'm going to write some code behind it and, and get this going. So literally, it was just somebody on the internet, some random person. We don't know who this person is that created this whole industry. Um, and, and actually, if the industry keeps going the way it is, that person will actually be the richest person in the world. And we have no idea who this person is. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. That's great. I've got a few anecdotes I want to throw out. I just want to see how you Please. either agree or how you react to these. Sure. About two years ago, a friend of mine here in New York, he invests in crypto and... And I, I said, I said, Al, what's what's behind it? You know, is it real? And he he gave me an example. He said, Billy, if you wanted to make a transaction from Australia and you were shipping that to New York, you would have seven different layers of paperwork along the way, which would ultimately slow down the transaction and the shipping time and all that stuff. He goes, if you pay for it with Bitcoin, it can be instant. Now, is he right or not? Yeah, he is. I mean, it's, it's really wild if you think about today. Like, let's say it's Friday afternoon. It's, it's 2 p.m. or 1.30 p.m. And you want to send uh, some money to your friend in Australia. Um, and you send a wire. Maybe it gets there by the cutoff and maybe it doesn't. And if it doesn't hit the cutoff on Friday afternoon, he may not get the money until Monday afternoon his time, which is crazy, right? Because what that means is you should go to the bank with a suitcase you should take out a bunch of money and, you know, there's issues obviously with more than $10,000 you know, going across country borders on a plane, but literally you could pull out $5,000. You could get on a plane, you could fly to Australia, you could fly to Sydney and hand him the money the next day. Um, and there are not that many places in the world today, if you think about it, where atoms can move faster than bits. And, and it tells you how, how broken and how old these systems are, because a lot of these systems were really built in the 1970s and we haven't upgraded them. So he's absolutely right. I mean, these, these systems, these legacy banking and financial systems are, uh, you know, they're held together with duct tape. Like, I, I don't know if you saw with like the, the stimulus, you know, they, they issued um, unemployment checks. And then what happened was we were never, these systems were, because they were built in the 70s, they were written in Fortran, which is a programming language nobody knows anymore. Like everybody that used to write code and pro, you know, program in Fortran isn't, a, isn't around anymore. And so these systems started to break because they weren't designed to process this volume of unemployment checks. And so they started, you know, employment agencies started issuing SOSs for does anybody know Fortran because our systems are breaking. Um, but that that's the state of the art of like how the financial system works is that, you know, it was built in the 70s by and large, which is pretty crazy. And that's why we have these weird experiences of, yeah, it's actually faster for you to fly mm. money to another country well, than it is to send it. So the whole idea there, obviously, is international commerce can be sped up to to the speed of the Internet, I would argue. Uh, another anecdote. I, I was told, you mentioned Ethereum. I was told that 
it was explained to me that that's the backbone of crypto. Like the internet cannot operate, well, like the internet, there's a backbone to the internet that allows Apple and Facebook and Yahoo or name your mm. company to operate. But if you don't have the foundation for the internet, they cannot function. And ETH, as you call it in, in short, uh, Ethereum, yeah. is that backbone. Is that fair or is there a better way to explain that? Hmm. You know, I haven't heard that before, and I think it's it's an interesting way to look at it, which is Ethereum as a platform, what it really lets you do is it has this this notion of smart contracts. And you say, well, what is a smart contract? What a smart contract does is it lets you write some code. And Ether, which is the native currency for the Ethereum platform, um, what is that? Well, it, it's sort of like Bitcoin. It's, it's a way for people to say, I think this thing has value, and I'm going to send it to you. So it's, it's a sort of a form of money or potentially a store of value. And so a lot of people buy Ether the same way that they might buy Bitcoin. And But what's interesting about the Ethereum ecosystem is it's made it really easy to program around Ether because the insight is that, well, if now all of a sudden these bits are equivalent to money, right? Like what is Ether or what is Bitcoin? It's just a bunch of ones and zeros inside your computer. If those things are now money, well, and they exist as bits, well, that means I can write computer code around them. And as soon as you can write computer code around money, you realize that actually a lot of the world is... Basically, here's a pile of money, and here's a bunch of rules around who has access to that money, and here's a bunch of rules about what you need to do with that money over the next 10 years. So that's a will, that's a trust, that's mortgages, that's derivatives, that's securities, that's HELOCs, it's, it's a lot of the world is that. And so now what something like Ethereum lets you do is say, well, I have money as ones and zeros, and now I can write computer code around it. And so instead of it being legal documents that are 100, page, 100 pages long, or being written in 1970s computer code inside a banking system, I can recreate the entire financial system. I can recreate banking and lending and credit. I can recreate all of those things, but with 2021 computer science instead of 1970s computer science, which of course is going to be much, much faster, much more secure, much easier to program, much more extensible. And so in a sense, if, if Ethereum fulfills its promise, it really could become the backbone for an entirely new financial system and potentially even more. Um, and, and it would be, you know, orders of magnitude more efficient than, than the way that we well, so, so that uh, he wasn't wrong. <laughs> no, he wasn't wrong. Hold that thought. More Hammer Time coming up. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you know, uh, when I follow this, I have a Coinbase account. I've a little bit of money in it, you know, not, not, I'm trying to learn about it is I always think that like smart people are rich people who want to understand an industry. They go out and they buy an aspect of the industry and then they study everything around it. And then you learn and that's, that, that's your education. I, I think it's true for a lot of people around the world. Um, my theory anyway, uh, but one yeah. day it's Ethereum, one day it's Bitcoin. And I mean, we're having this conversation on a Thursday afternoon. A lot of our listeners will hear about it over the weekend. But like this past week, there's this thing called Solano. Right? Like, where did Solano come come from? And I, I just think, you know, th there's a confounding aspect to try and understand, well, if you're going to get into it, what do you get into and why? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think the, the I mean, really important, well, a couple of important things here. One, this is not financial advice. You know, there's, you have to do a ton of research before you deploy any capital here. And, and I would not advise anybody to deploy capital here um, at any scale and, and speculate here because it's extremely volatile and you really could lose all of your money. Um, and so by no means is this intended to be financial advice. Um, I think the, the thing though is maybe the thought exercise for people to think about is if you could go back to 1995 
and you knew everything that was going to happen on the internet over the next 20 years, what would you do? And I, I think your I'd, point is exactly I'd, right. I'd go all in. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what I would do um, is, you know, in order to get to the point where you have enough conviction to be able to make good financial decisions, kind of at least the way I approach it is what you really need to do before you deploy capital is you really need to deeply understand something, right? Like you need to ask yourself the question, what do I know that other people don't know? Like, what do I understand about the world that most people have not yet figured out? And why do I believe that? And I think that if you start from like that premise of I understand something more deeply and therefore I have a better informed view, then you can start to say, well, I can make better investment decisions potentially. And so what I would do if I went back to 1995 is I would just start playing with all this stuff again, right? I would, I would figure out how the internet protocols work. I would write, I would create a website. Like imagine creating websites in 1994, 95. Um, you know, I'd figure out how to program. I'd figure out how web apps work, you know, before things like eBay happened. Um, and if you started just playing with it and learning and building and, and even in really basic stuff, I think you would build a really good visceral sense for what's happening and what's possible and what, you know, and, and that information advantage, I think, is a good place to start from. Um, and so what I encourage people to do is just start playing with this stuff, you know, go, um, go get a MetaMask wallet and, and put, you know, 20 bucks in it, put 100 bucks in it and go to something like OpenSea and try to buy an NFT. And just see what that experience feels like. And all of a sudden you'll say, wow, this is really clunky. <laughs> it is like using the internet in 1995. But oh my God, I, I've seen the future. Like I can see why this stuff is going to work. Or you know, even if you have 10 bucks, like try to send $5 to your friend um, using, using something like uh, Bitcoin or Solana or, or Nier or Celo. Like go play with these things and say, wow, that is amazing. I actually just sent you money on a Saturday night when everything is closed and it didn't go through any of the legacy banking infrastructure and you have it right now on your phone and you can do whatever wow. you want with it. Like it you know, but, and to play with it. That's right, my, right, but that's my I, I can do that now on Venmo. Sort of. What, I mean, what's it's, the it's difference? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of big differences. So one, of course, is um, Venmo or PayPal, just like Facebook or Google or Apple can shut you off whenever they feel like it, right? And, and for arbitrary reasons. And it happens all the time, even if it's not, you know, you haven't done anything nefarious because at scale, you have these giant machine learning systems that are pattern matching. And if they think you're a bad actor, not even you are a bad actor, if they think you're a bad actor, you're out. And what do you do? Like who you're going to appeal to, right? Where your $300 is gone. And you look at PayPal, they have a long history of doing this. And it's not, it's not you know, I don't blame them necessarily. I mean, they have to comply with AML and KYC and, and they should. Um, but, you know, that, that legacy system is not really set up for protecting small business owners. It's not set up for protecting individuals. It's really set up to protect large corporations that move lots of money around. And so in these systems, you can't get shut off in quite the same way. Um, and, and so it's really empowering, I think, for the individual and small business to know that you can't get shut off. That's one. And then two, I think, is this idea of programmability, right? Which is, if you think about what made the internet work or what made mobile work, it was the idea that because these systems were open, any developer could come in and build on top of that. And that got the flywheel of innovation going because now when things are open, somebody else can come build on top of what you've done and then somebody else can build on top of what they've done. You get very rapid progress in innovation. And so what we've done now is opened up all of the legacy financial systems, right? What we've done is we said, anything that deals with money, we can reinvent in a way where somebody can take that and build on top of it. And so what you're seeing is we're, we're in essence, recreating the entire financial system. What took us from like 1900 to 2000 I think it's recreated here in like the next five years. Like we've gone, we'll, we'll, we'll compress about a hundred years of, of work into like five to 10 years because the, the rate of innovation is so fast. Um, and so I think, you know, when you look at it through that lens, you say, well, what are all of the things that the legacy financial system may have come up with in 200 years? Um, what are all the ways that we could be helping people, you know, um, people who are outside the system today, people who are poor, people, you know, veterans, people who are, 
um, you know, unbanked today. Uh, people who have to do international business, like the world is global today, right? Like, and, and the legacy banking system was not set up to think of an international world. All of these things we can now invent 10 times faster because you have open innovation. And so I'm really excited about, I mean, by analogy, I, I always think analogies are useful. Like imagine being in 95 and predicting something like Uber or Airbnb, right? It would just been crazy to imagine that because you would have to imagine so many intermediate steps, but we were able to do that because those systems were open and they were, and, and that allowed innovation to happen. And so I think over the next 20 years, what we're going to start to see is innovation happening here in a way where we can't even predict what the what the end case is going to be. You know, like one of the most interesting areas in, in crypto right now, in my opinion, is the idea that people are buying and selling art directly from creators. And so you think about something like YouTube um, or TikTok, you know, the, all these people that create videos and create art and create music, they're they're going through these platforms. And if they get shut off, their business goes away. Right. Like if YouTube shuts you off. Your business is over. Um, or if Apple kicks you out of their app store, your, your business is over. But with these systems, the creator can have a direct relationship with their fans. And the fans are actually buying things directly from creators now in a way that they can't be disintermediated and they can't be shut off. Um, and so you're seeing an entirely new business model emerge where creators can actually sustain their business because the fans can pay them directly. And there's no person in the middle taking 70% of it in some cases, right? If you look at the revenue split that happens on some of these platforms, like most of it actually may not even go to the creator. Um, and in this new world, like 100% of it goes to the creator. And so I think the innovation that's going to happen because the systems are open is, is why it's so interesting. Wow. That's uh, a great, a very interesting answer. I, I did not expect that. However, is it not just a question of time before somebody comes in and disrupts the system? I mean, who's to say that's, that's guaranteed? And I, I thought that quote you said, if they think, if they think you're a bad actor, they'll cut you off. I, I think that's true for social media today. And you probably agree with that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's correct. And, and I think, but, I mean, that's, but, that's, sorry, but who's to say that at some point, maybe it's a year from now or 10 years from now, that there isn't some hall monitor mm. in the crypto world that crashes your entire purpose for trading on this platform, be it money or um, art or what have you? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. So, I, I think it touches on two things. So one is the, by design, these systems are designed to prevent that. Um, and so what you have is the option of going back to this idea of you can actually control your own assets. Um, you can, you can choose to have a wallet on your, on your computer and by design, you own that money. It's like having cash in your wallet. And it's very, very hard for somebody to actually shut that off. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of by design, these systems are designed to prevent that from happening. Now in practice, um, there are going to be companies that form, right? Like not everybody wants to manage their own passwords and manage all of the, the overhead of doing this. And so you will get companies that manage these things for you and become a new form of intermediary, right? You'll get a new version of, uh, of, of YouTube or a new version of Facebook or whatever that emerges here on top of these new platforms. But I think that because so many users, especially the power users, will have the option to leave. Like imagine if you could if you could leave YouTube and you could leave, or let's say take Facebook. Let's say you could leave Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram and you could take your entire social graph with you, right? You could take all of your friends with you and there's nothing that Facebook could do to stop that because the way that they built their product was on top of uh, an infrastructure that allowed you to have that kind of portability. That's kind of what's happening here is you have the option to exit the system. And when you have the option to exit the system, we think it'll actually enforce much better behavior from companies because their most powerful users in the you know in the banking system will be the richest people um, or, or the most influential companies in in, the, in sort of a community social uh, context will be the influencers and the biggest creators 
if your most powerful users can just leave your system, we think it creates a, an incentive to be a much better app. Yeah, so, that's, that makes sense from a business standpoint. I think you're right about that. Let me throw, throw out another anecdote. Uh, after the sure. election of 2020, um, there was a newly elected senator from Wyoming by the name of Cynthia Loomis, and she was on Fox. And uh, I don't know if this is days or maybe a week or two after the election. I can't recall exactly. And, you know, she was she was talking and I, I, it was I can't even remember what the subject matter was. But I remember what her dismount was because it came out of the blue. And she said, oh, and by the way, we're open for business for Bitcoin mining in the state of Wyoming. Come and yeah. check us out. And I said, where'd that come from? So where'd that come from? You know, Wyoming has been extremely forward thinking in in crypto regulation. Um, I think they realized that there's this new industry emerging. I mean, you know, Bitcoin is now worth almost a trillion dollars. You know, the rest of the the crypto ecosystem is worth about a trillion dollars. Coinbase is a 50 or 60 billion dollar company. There are many, many more companies that are waiting in the wings to IPO in the next 10 years. Um, So all of a sudden you have a, you know, multi-trillion dollar economic sector and you look around and you say, well, who's embracing it? Who's who's being forward thinking and saying, yes, come here, businesses, come here, entrepreneurs, come here. And Wyoming has done a fantastic job of this. Um, and so not only are they sort of encouraging people to come in and, and start businesses there, but their legislators being really forward thinking as well. They're, you know, they're creating rules that allow you to have um, sort of, you know, really interesting bridges between um, the, the digital world and, and crypto and the, and the real world. So something as simple as like, how do one of these entities that are that exist in crypto create a bank account and it turns out creating bank accounts for people that do business in crypto is really hard and wyoming's made it really really easy so i think they're being really smart and forward thinking essentially embracing this new this new sector of the economy and just looking at the numbers frankly mm. they're, they're basically saying wow here's this multi-trillion dollar ecosystem that's emerging and like what state in the u.s is embracing this or what countries in the world are embracing this and they're being very smart to be forward well, looking to embrace it. i'm going to keep an eye on that in a moment here i want to know how government's going to screw this up all right stand by no. right? <laughs> you're with hammer time and avicho garg on crypto back in a moment back here on hammer time avicho really appreciate your time um whew, on the email the other day you said bill i can talk about this forever you got you have to let me know when i want to stop uh or when i want you to stop um but what's Congress going to do? Will, will they screw it up? How will they tax it? What's your expectation? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting and it's topical. I mean, the, the infrastructure bill that's going through the Senate, that just went through the Senate, and it's going through the House now, I, th- I think, is, is looking at this. Um, yes, they, they will certainly tax it. It already has to be taxed. You know, when you sell Bitcoin, when you sell Ethereum or any of these assets, uh, you have to pay taxes on the gains. You pay capital, capital gains. So Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are technically not securities. Um, you know, the, the SEC has said they're, they're not securities, so they behave a little bit more like commodities. Um, but you have to pay taxes on them. Um, you know, how might the government um, sort of do something wrong here? I, I think the, the way that this goes wrong, and I hope it doesn't happen, is that the government plays defense rather than playing offense. And what I mean by that is that there's an opportunity for us to embrace all of the innovation that's happening here um, and to say, hey, founders and entrepreneurs, um, come create the next generation of technology, the next computing platform in the United States. And if we do that, we can we can bake in uh, American values. We can bake in notions of due process um, and privacy um, and, and and sovereignty. Right? We can we can take those principles that are in the Constitution and, and bake them into these systems. Um, and if we don't do that, which is you know the risk, because the government says this stuff is bad, I want to push it away, let's kill it. What will happen is that we now exist in in a global world, right? Where this is this is not 
the 80s, right? Uh, we now have very, very stiff competition from overseas. And so what will almost certainly happen is that uh, the Chinese government will embrace this. And they've actually been very, very forward thinking about this. So the Chinese government is, is phenomenal when it comes to embracing technology, right? If you just look at their track record um, of, of sort of embracing it and using technology um, in the government, um, they're very, very good at this. And they are using all these blockchain technologies and digital assets and cryptography, and, and they're very good at this. And so they're modernizing their government at a very rapid clip. Um, you know, President Xi, I believe it was in November, 2019, um, give a speech where he said that that blockchain technologies are one of their their critical investment areas alongside artificial intelligence. So they're really investing here. And so I think the risk is that if the U.S. pushes this stuff away, what happens is that the Chinese government embraces this stuff and, and they build the systems and they get to decide the values that get baked into this technology, right? Because technology is not without value, right? The people that create it get to imbue it with value. Um, and I think that would be that, that would not be a great world for a lot of people, right? Like what happens to privacy? Um, in that world, like if, if the government can see every single transaction that you're doing, um, you know, what happens in terms of international commerce, right? If you think about um, trading partners and trading routes and, and kind of, you know, what happens to the strength of the dollar, um, right? The dollar is sort of as the, as the reserve currency for the world, um, you know, sort of you need global trade to be denominated in dollars. And if all of a sudden there's a better way to do that international trade that does not rely on dollars, um, that's not so great for the U.S. So I think this actually starts to touch on some some pretty tough geopolitical game theory. And in my opinion, if you sort of just game theory it out, um, even if you set aside, you know, let's say set aside the values for a second and you just are, are a rational actor and you say, let me play the game theory of this and let me put on my hat of let me pretend to be the Chinese government. Let me put on my American government hat. Let me put on my EU hat. How does this all play out? Um, and in my opinion, if you play that simulation out, it's very clear that the, the parts of the world that embrace these new technologies are going to see trillions of dollars of, of economic growth um, and, and development of expertise in things like cryptography um, that is going to then allow those, those regions of the world to have huge advantages over the rest of the world. And so I think it'd be a big mistake for the U.S. government to push it away. But that's always the risk, right? Because from a government perspective, from a, re a regulatory perspective or, or a legislative perspective, you know, it's risky, right? Like embracing innovation is, is always risky. Um, it comes with cost. It comes with the risk of something bad happening and then you get blamed for it. And if you just shut it down, then, then you know, you get to talk about all the bad stuff that's happening mm -hmm. and you shut it down. I mean, you, you don't score, you know, like it's hard to score political points if you did something 10 years ago, right? If, if you go back and you say, who are all the people that made the internet happen? And, and there were great senators on both sides that allowed the internet to emerge. And they really said, yes, free speech is important. Like let's, let's make sure the internet has that. Um, but you didn't really see the fruits of that for another 20 years, um, right? But the modern internet and the, the basically the entire economy of the United States at this point, which relies on that, you know, the, the roots of that were legislation that happened in the early 90s, uh, things like Section 230 um, around how speech works on the internet. Um, and so I think we're in that era now. Like, you know, the rules that we define today will determine if in 10 or 20 years, this new sector of the economy that, that could be worth tens of trillions of dollars is, is the center of gravity in the United States, it, or is it somewhere else? Yeah, interesting. Um, I, but, but when it comes to Beijing, I mean, just two, two weeks ago, they, they moved all the Bitcoin mining out of China. Hmm. I, I, I think that's significant. I, I, I don't know how you view that. But you also said privacy. Um, I Yeah, I would agree with you, privacy. But why would you trust the Chinese Communist government to keep any of this private? It, it's my yeah. guess that they, that they will know every transaction that takes place through their own crypto system. So uh, exactly. why would you even be drawn to that if you're either Chinese or Hong Kong Chinese or or living in any country around the world? 
Yeah, it's a very good question. And, and it's, it's ultimately um, because what the, what the Chinese government will be able to offer uh, in these systems is a great degree of efficiency. Um, because what they're going to do is invest in, you know, going back to this idea of when you're in the 70s and we created the modern banking system, we built it in a certain way. And, and you can almost, you know, the thought exercise is, well, if you just reimagined the entire global financial system, but using 2020s technology instead of 1970s technology, wouldn't it be that much more efficient? And so the, there's actually a very utilitarian value proposition here that that um, the, the Chinese government um, could take out to the world, which is like, hey, look, why are we taking seven days? Like we buy some oil, you have some futures contract, it takes two days to settle that. And then you get like money you know, from one currency to another, and then it settles in an American bank account with US dollars, and you get your money a week later. Wouldn't it be great if you could just get your money in 10 minutes? Wouldn't that be better than getting your money in a week? And that's compelling, right? If you're talking about billions of dollars at scale, or you're talking about international trade. Um, but the side effect of that is now like you're, you're, you sort of opted into a system that has certain kinds of, uh, you know, privacy values and so on. And they've set the standards for that now because everybody's using their system. Yeah, you got it. Okay. Um, and so I don't think they'll, I don't think they'll lead with that. And I don't think people will choose to opt into it necessarily, but there will be all these other benefits that the Chinese government can offer you. I mean, you see, I mean, they're so good at, at, at this, right? They look at something like Belt and Road Initiative where they're going around the world and, and putting hundreds of billions of dollars to work building ports and infrastructure for people. Um, and governments are willing to accept that because there's clear benefit to them and their people. And then it comes with trade-offs, right? It comes, it comes with, with debt, for example. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they're certainly very good at this plan, uh, or sort of this sort of this playbook, and, and they're going to execute it well, mm, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, watching that, too. Just a couple more questions here for you. Um, I remember in 2000 when the NASDAQ was at 5,000. That was a bubble. Um, yeah. I don't remember, but I have read about the TULIP Ponzi scheme in Holland from five, six hundred years ago. Is this a bubble? Uh, that's a great question. Um, again, not financial advice. Um, I don't know if it's a bubble. Uh, it's extremely frothy right now. Um, it, sorry, it's extremely, volatile. say, floppy? What did... Frothy. Frothy. <laughs> There's like it. a lot okay. of, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yes, no, I got um, it. Yeah, it's, it's extremely, you know, it, it is, it does feel, you know, there's just so much volatility in crypto. Um, and, and, you know, prices move very, very quickly up and down. And so you can lose a lot of money, which is why I encourage people not to invest money that they can't lose in this space and, and to be very careful. Um, and so that's almost certainly the case. I think it's also uh, an easy assertion that actually probably like the 90s, you know, 90% of these projects won't exist in, in 10 years. Um, they'll, they'll have disappeared and, and um, be worth nothing. Um, but I would also say that I think if you look at the history of innovation, that, that is sort of the cost of innovation, um, which is in the moment, you don't really know the stuff that's going to work. And actually, people try a lot of things, um, and there's a lot of volatility, and things run up really, really crazy, and then they crash. Um, and if you look at the railroads, if you look at fiber optics, if you look at the internet, if you look at mobile and now crypto, this is a recurring pattern. And there are economists like uh, Carlotta Perez who have looked at this and basically come to the conclusion that basically, if you want to have innovation, you kind of have to deal with these bubbles. Um, because in the moment you don't know what's valuable and then people, it's sort of that, that adage of it's really hard to know. Um, it's really hard to know what happens in two years, but it's like much easier to know what happens in 10 years, you know, or, or, or another variant of this is people overestimate what's possible in two years, but they underestimate what's possible in 10 years. And, and this is sort of like the market manifestation of that is everybody assumes these things will work really, really quickly. So you get these bubbles and then it's just, everybody's too optimistic and then it crashes out. But then everybody stops paying attention to it for another five years, 
Meanwhile, the people who are the engineers and, and the business people and the entrepreneurs are building and they just keep building for another five years. And then everybody turns around and says, wait a second, all of that stuff that we talked about 10 years ago is real now. It actually works. Um, and so I, I would almost argue that, you know, even if you assert that there is some sort of a bubble, bubbles are just sort of the cost of innovation. Like you have to sort of be willing to say that there are going to be bubbles if you want to have these really disruptive breakthroughs in society. Uh-huh. Huh. So you would argue this is the next form of gold or the new form of gold or a or just another form of gold? Well, I, I would say um, Bitcoin is, is essentially millennial gold, right? It's, it's, it's becoming digital gold. Um, it has a lot of the same properties. You know, it's seizure resistant. It's liquid. It's easy to transport. It's provably scarce, like all of those things that gold has. Um, and so it's a potential store of value. Um, so it's not digital gold yet, but it has many of the same characteristics. And so it might one day uh, play the same role. Um, and, th- and that's why so many people are buying Bitcoin is they think that it will play that role in a portfolio that gold does. When you look beyond Bitcoin to the rest of, of um, digital assets and, and crypto, I think it's the new internet. I think it's a platform to build software and to build businesses. Um, and, and all of the things that we use on the internet today, in 20 years, we'll be able to do all of these things on these new crypto platforms. But there'll be, you know, you have more privacy, you'll actually get to own your own assets. Like, the, the Facebooks and YouTubes and Googles and Apples of the world won't just be able to shut you off because they feel like it. Um, you know, all, and so I think you'll actually get a much, much better um, internet, actually, at the end of the day. And that's, that's my hope, is that we actually find a better way to, to rebuild all of these systems that right now, you know, it's, it, you know you, you, we really have ended up in a world which is not, if you go back to the original designers of the internet, how they were thinking about these systems, they were about democratizing access to information and access to business and and capital and all these things. And, and really what we've ended up with is a very small number of people and a very small number of businesses that have all of the influence and have all of the money and have all of the power. And so I think this is actually an opportunity for us to, to get back to what the internet was supposed to be when it was first imagined in the 80s, 90s. Mm, wow. <laughs> really, I'm, listen, you're selling me. <laughs> Can't say I'm going to go all in, Avichul, but you, you know, you're selling me. <laughs> The new internet. Wow. I guess that's why Zuckerberg wants to get on it, right? I mean, they Facebook floated that yeah. idea two years ago, and then they pulled it back, I guess, at least publicly. Uh, last question. <clears throat> there is this thing called an NFT. You mentioned it early on mm-hmm. in our conversation. Non-fungible token is what it stands for. It's essentially, I, uh, the way I would define it is that it, it's a digital image. Well, I, I think one of these digital images a few days ago sold for like $7 million. Of, it was an avatar image of something that was online. I can't even recall. Yeah. And I know people are paying tens of millions of dollars for other NFTs. What makes someone think that there is that much value in a digital image? Hmm. It's a really good question. I actually, you know... The answer may actually be, we don't know yet, <laughs> right? Um, but if you go talk to these people, which we do, there are a couple of interesting things that are happening right now with the NFT ecosystem. So, you know, if you think about just NFTs just as art for a second, and they're actually much more than art, you know, why do people buy art? Um, they buy it because they actually want the physical painting, let's say, like they want ownership of the thing. They buy it because they want to support the artist. So they're sort of saying like, hey, you created this thing. Let me give you some money so you can keep creating art because I want to support you. And then they buy it because of the social capital that comes from having said that you bought it. And so, you know, if you're if you're ultra rich, like why spend $50 million on some piece of art? Well, it's so that you can tell people you spent $50 million on some piece of art, right? That's the social capital that comes with it. And so what's interesting about NFTs is 
you actually, you know, even if there's no physical thing there, it's, it's entirely digital, you still get the two other things, right? You still get the social capital that says, I spent $7 million on that thing, like, and I get a bunch of social capital from that. And you still get to support the artist. And so actually, you're getting a lot of the same underlying, like the reason people buy art, you're still getting a lot of that here with NFTs. Now, what's interesting to me about NFTs is that they're much more than that. Because they're digital, you're starting to see a lot of really emergent behaviors happen here. So for example, people have created communities where the only way to get into the digital community is if you own certain specific pieces uh, of art, if you own certain specific NFTs. And so, you know, this, uh, I, th I think the, the profile pick um, example you're using is, is a project called CryptoPunks, which CryptoPunks were one of the first NFT projects um, back in 2017. And there's only 10,000 of them. And so if you own one of the 10,000 CryptoPunks, you're now in this sort of exclusive community um, that has its own norms and, and people sort of know each other. And it, it's, a, it's sort of a, uh, it's like a digital club that you can be a part of. And so there's sort of this like fan club aspect to it. Um, you know, I think people are starting to play with this technology in really interesting ways. And so they're starting to say, well, um, what if by owning, let's say I'm an artist or a musician, what if by owning one of my NFTs, you get special benefits because you've actually bought a piece of art from me. Maybe the next time I'm in your town, I'm going to have a dinner and everybody who owns my NFT gets to come have dinner with me. Or if I'm a musician, there's a musician by the name of Justin Blau. And what Justin is doing is really fascinating. He's playing with the idea that you can actually take songs and sell them as NFTs. So you could actually own one of Justin's songs as an NFT and you're the only person that owns it. And maybe you release it on, you know, onto YouTube and you get all the ad revenue that comes from it. Um, maybe you like, you know, release it back to BMG and Spotify and you get some royalties off of it, but it's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. But then everybody who owns one of Justin's NFTs is basically one of Justin's super fans and they get all these other benefits uh, of, of sort of being in the Justin ecosystem. Wow. Um, and so there are a lot of these really interesting experiments happening with like, if art were digital, what are all of the other things you could do with it? Mm -hmm. The imagination runs wild. Earlier, you called this the new internet. I, based on that description for an NFT, I would call that a new business, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. No, that's spot on. I mean, and, and that's what's so, I mean, like so often when you see disruptive innovation, it, it is very often coupled with a new business model, right? Because when, when all of a sudden, when you have a new business model, that's where new types of businesses can, can emerge. And usually incumbents, when you think about something as simple as like, why couldn't Walmart compete with Amazon? Um, it's because not only you know does the, the infrastructure and the technology need to change inside the business for them to be able to com be competitive in, the, in a new business, but the human organization has to change. And so when you look at the old you know, big tech companies as human organizations inside those companies, they're not really set up to participate in these crypto ecosystems. Like they don't have the DNA to hire the right people to be able to do that. And so these new business models, I think, are potentially extremely disruptive. I think you're spot on that it's a new business model. Mm. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we met virtually. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. Avicio Garg, co-founder and partner at Electric Capital. There is so much more to get into. I, I know you realize that, and so do I. But um, I, I think for anyone listening to this, you have piqued the interest of a lot of people. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.